the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour two, it was uh, kind of interesting to me. We got we were taking some calls in the previous hour on education, and uh, now we get to talk uh, to educate about education from the other end of the spectrum with Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. It's a school that really does it right. And uh, this man is involved in uh, all kinds of civic enterprises, but mostly for the betterment of understanding social and public policy and training students to do the same. Happy Friday, Pete. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Great to be back with you and happy Friday to you. Are you in Southern California? I am. You, I am. Do you have but your skis? actually, uh, you'll get a kick out of this. Yeah. I'm. I'm due to leave this evening for uh, Switzerland. Oh, okay. What? What? Which? Which place? Which locale will have more snow? Well, you know, it's up in the air. <laughs> it's up in the air about that right now. I will say that uh, I, I'm told, and this is actually a, a trip for Pepperdine. Pepperdine's actually opening a new campus. Um, outside of Geneva, oh, wow. uh, which is part the reason for this whole oh, visit. Neat. But I have seen uh, snow in places even within the the city uh, limits of Malibu in the last uh, week and a half. It's really been remarkable. And the mountains that you see all around Los Angeles are all snow-capped. So it's quite a quite a senior. I want to talk about that in respect to the drought situation in California yep. in a few moments, if I can. You had lunch with a mutual friend of ours today, did you? I did. I did. Uh, our mutual pal, Steve Hayward, is in town. Um, Steve has taught with us before as a visiting professor, and we've just stayed in touch over the years. Um, we're actually going to be co-sponsoring there's uh, going to be a really great event i don't think it's actually been promoted yet but a great event this summer at the reagan library uh titled the age of reagan oh, conference good. and so i uh, was chatting with steve a bit that's about the title that. of one of his books if memory serves that's yeah. right yeah. exactly right yeah. exactly right aside exactly. from you do you know a more cheerful conservative i mean the guy is no. just so jolly yeah. isn't he yeah. <laughs> he's just so fun no. to be around and so fun he to is. talk to he is, he I, is. I have known him since the early 80s well pete mm. um I had an interesting set of calls, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, from some parents in town about education. They were making a point. We don't probably make enough uh, when it comes to elementary and secondary, uh, which is just because a school is private doesn't always mean it's better. And it certainly doesn't mean necessarily that it's less woke. You and I have seen a whole number of examples where some private or even religious schools can be even more woke or more progressive or even Marxist than than what you get in the public fair, fair from yeah. time to time. But I was interested a little bit in that because I saw you 
were tweeting uh, about an interesting study that came out of the Heritage Foundation on the naming of schools and how these things can change and education can change, not always in ways that hit you in the face, but sometimes subtleties, too. You were, you were kind of interested in this, uh, in this Heritage report you retweeted about, uh, about how schools being named for people like Lincoln and Washington, et cetera, et cetera, less and less the norm, huh? Yeah, it is. And um, obviously, we know the at the most extremes, we know the stories right here in California, That's up right. in San Francisco yeah. with their school district, and uh, at least initially attempting to uh, rename schools named for Abraham Lincoln and, and George Washington. Um, but as new schools are, are launched, uh, that report certainly gets into uh, the the significant changes that we're seeing in naming away from uh, America's uh, founders and and those that obviously have been pivotal in the uh, creation of of the United States. And it's worth noting, I was actually just, uh, just on this on this topic. Uh, a friend of mine who. Um, is a Democrat, used to be head of this, uh, the Senate Democrats in the state legislature, uh, but has become a, a very vocal advocate for school choice uh-huh. named Gloria Romero. Uh-huh. Um, she was just making a point. I saw an interview with her in which she was saying that in the state of California, we have several dozen schools named after Martin Luther King, uh-huh. and the vast majority of them are underperforming. Yeah, well, and, and, and what a tragedy. But you know what? There's going to be a second wave to this tragedy. You and I, when we went to schools, I mean, there was this interesting phenomenon. We went to schools, we probably, or maybe not you and me, but a lot of people we know or would know, went to schools. We didn't know who those schools were named after. We went and studied in buildings or lived in dorms. We didn't know who they were named after. Yep. And they were names yep. like, I always get it wrong, is it Carnegie or Carnegie? Can you can you tell me the right? The, I always say Carnegie. Fair enough. People yeah. like Carnegie and, and names like that, uh, that once yep. upon, yep. and, and, and we just kind of pass through these things. I get why and how. We're busy thinking about other things, but we don't recognize those names of have, as having any tie whatsoever to history. We take no effort yeah. to think about them. And here's the worry, Pete. Believe it or not, I'm almost as concerned about schools that are named for Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Jefferson, yeah. soon becoming yeah. of that kind of problem, where people will just have yeah. no idea who they are either. Or really, gosh, honestly, probably Martin Luther King Jr. He's kind of right. out of step in the modern academy, and so it's probably going to not be too many more years where students won't know who Martin Luther King was either. I'm, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic about that. Yeah, no, I, I, it is a part and parcel of the broader uh, problems that we have in teaching history. Um, and frankly, as many have said, uh, the corruption of the academic discipline mm-hmm. of history that we're seeing in higher education. So this is, who are the, who are the historians? Who's going to be writing the history of the future? Mm-hmm. And I had lunch recently with a, another friend of ours in common, Bill McClay. Oh, what a what a and what an angel! He was angel. just making. Yeah. He was just letting me know just about some of the challenges in the American Historical Association, which is kind of the major higher education academic association of historians, has just become so ideological. Uh, and again, if this were a discipline that we really needn't care too much about, that would be 
one thing, but of course, understanding and knowing our history is so fundamental to our broader identity that uh, it really is very, very disturbing from our middle schools all the way up to uh, PhD program. Yeah, right. Uh, this is an attenuation. It's been going on for a long time. People used to look at me uh, crazy when I would say, honest to God, I think it started in the 40s when we started coursework in a discipline called social studies. We invented the notion of social studies. We used to call it history or civics. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, of course, you know, we've seen it as my producer is reminding me in the move from Washington's birthday or Lincoln's birthday to President's Day. And, uh, you know, on and yeah. on, on and on the, 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 the vitiation goes. But it yeah. is, it's, it's sometimes more boldly done and sometimes it's more subtly done. Those would be subtle examples. The bold would be the California example, taking Lincoln's name off of school. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, it's not as if we're surfeited with a great, great level of historical knowledge. You know, I, I, I still redound to that NAEP revelation that 50% of our 12th graders graduate high school below basic, which, which means F, failure in American history. And thus we make aliens of our own citizens right in our own schools, don't we, Pete? We do. And of course, in other types of governments, in other types of political situations, that wouldn't be maybe as big of a deal. But we place such an importance uh, and weight of responsibility on self-governing citizens to be both informed and engaged that for America, this is a uniquely uh, problematic issue. Um, because that was the only thing the founders counted on. If you were going to extend this degree of of freedoms to a people that had we'd never seen it before at this scale in human history, then you're also counting on them to be both educated, informed, and expected to be engaged in the civic life of the community, states, and nation. That's right. And that really begins in the schoolhouse, as we know. And That's right. That that makes it uniquely important That's right. and problematic. That's right. You know? And when you see the polls that we've seen, i got to take a break. This is a big topic. Can I just cut to the break on this yep. abrupt note, and we'll come back to this one? Way. Thank you, Pete. I get so <laughs> caught up with you, I lose track of the time, which tells you you're in the presence of a great mind when you're talking to Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. If you are interested in a career in public policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. It's the best there is, and he's the best there is, and we're proud he's a friend of ours. I'm Seth, he's Pete, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson, as well as his school, Pepperdine School of Public Policy, they're simply the best. Pete, I want to talk to you about California in a minute and um, what it looks like when uh, public policy goes wrong and what it looks like when public policy becomes an ID fix. Uh, before I do that, let me let me spend one more minute with you on history and its corruption for a moment and education. You know, it dawns on me, putting a couple things together, there was a poll that came out last week showing this country more racially divided than it has been in any other point in our lifetimes, which is an odd thing to think about in the year 2023 after all we've been through in our lifetimes or all we've seen in our lifetimes. And it dawns on me, you know, as I was saying, people are beginning to lose interest in Martin Luther King, for example, because in the academy he's kind of on the outs. Um, and this is kind of the effect that 
it seems to me transpires when you have other history, historians taken seriously, like Ibrahim uh, X. Kendi, who's kind of all the rage now out of Boston University, and he talks about um, the kinds of things he talks about is discrimination being the um, being the answer to past and present discrimination is current and future discrimination. When he says things like that, and you talk to young minds about what Thurgood Marshall was arguing in Brown versus Board, or what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about, and they just look at you with empty or blank stares. This is what happens. Milan Kundera. I'll let you speak. I'm sorry. But Milan Kundera, I've always liked his quote from the Book of Laughter and Forgetting, important title. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, and its history, and then have somebody write new books and manufacture a new culture and invent a new history. And before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was. And it just seems to me that's what's going on. Yeah, well, it starts with a fundamental understanding of human nature, which, to be specific about it in this context, is that, as we learn from Plato and Socrates, we are we are a social being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, we seek affiliation, we seek community. Uh, it's not to say that there aren't times when certainly there's polarization and fracturing, but our, our natural human tendency is towards wanting to affiliate and build community with others. One of the ways that that community establishment is passed down from generation to generation is through the telling of stories. I was just, oh man, you were going right where I was thinking. In Plato's Republic, that great passage about the stories we tell our children, right? Yeah. Right, 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 which is also biblical. Right, right, right. right. Yes, of course. We pass these things down and what we will tell our children and what will then be passed on. And so the, the human skill of storytelling as a way of connecting people, not only to their past, but to one another, Mm -hmm. is so fundamentally a part of who we are as human beings. And of course, the Marxists understood that if you're going to intend to uh, revolutionize, to utterly and to truly transform a people, you have to disconnect it from its history. Because in doing so, you're really disconnecting people from one another one another, initially to your forefathers and foremothers, um, but more basically and broadly to your own culture and nation. And so this is really a very intentional way of fighting against human nature, and it begins with the destruction uh, and, the, and the discounting and the shaming of, of history. Marx was pretty clear on this himself in his notes on Feuerbach, wasn't he, when he said the task hitherto has been to understand history where it is now to change it. It's exactly what he yeah. wrote. And, right, and, yeah, and, and in so no. doing, yeah. if, you can, if you can eradicate history, then you can set a premise to say that you can radically transform the future. Yeah, you deracinate individuals. C.S. Lewis was on to this, right. too. He said, yeah. this is how you propagandize children. You rob them of their history, and, yep. you, and you miseducate them. And, it, and, it, and, and that other part you've mentioned, Pete, which I know is so dear to your own scholarship and research, 
is the atomization of human beings, the the, yeah. the, the splitting them from their communities, uh, splitting them from being part of a larger community, which is what a mutual history has, which is, which is what Plato was getting at in the Republic. And I wonder sometimes, Pete, if the left gets this much better than we do. This, oh, uh, you, yeah. you, you know where I'm going. Go ahead. You're chomping at no, the No, I, I, I yeah. think you're totally right. Okay. I, I think... It's it's a it's an intentional step. Once you can make the founding in the case of the American experience, yeah. once you can teach students that the founding was an inherently corrupt, uh, if not evil, enterprise, then really all bets are off as far as how we govern ourselves and how we think about not only the future but the present and. In so doing, and I'm not sure if we all get that this yet, some of the challenges that we're seeing in the mental health of yep. our teenagers and young, which yep. again is something we talk about yep. often yep. Uh, in our conversations, I, I believe there's at least a thread of that, yes. which has to do with the disconnecting of people from their uh, communities and past, which, which have served as a way of uh, at least providing... Uh, counsel and connection uh, to to all Americans and really all human beings. One bookmark I want to lay down here before we get to California, Pete, um, if we can. Can we reserve our next visit when you come back to spend the whole hour on that whole debate between the likes of uh, Derek Thompson and Jonathan Haidt and social media and mental health. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. You, I think you yeah, know what, sure. of what I speak. Oh, um, for sure. Uh, for those that want to get a sense of it, uh, check out a piece by Ross Do That in the Amer- in the New York Times called "American Teens Are Really Miserable and Why." There's some new research also. I don't know if you saw. Um, I think Matt Iglesias was writing about it, showing. Mm. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The political divisions on these things. It turns out there is a liberal conservative preponderance uh, amongst our teens and depression as well. Not surprise. Not surprising to you but that uh, the conservative adolescents are much less depressed than the liberal left ones. Kind of interesting um, in some additional research to that. Well, I'd love to discuss that. All right, good. Yeah, we're going to spend some time on that. So let me take this break, Pete, and come back on what I was referencing earlier about California and the corruption of public policy and the adherence to it against all evidence, um, the idif fix, if you will. How do you say that? Can you help me? You're helping me with my pronunciations today. What's the right way to say that? ID fix? ED fix? Something yeah, like that. That's okay. Right. All right. <laughs> I need about four. One of them is right. All right. You're a generous grader to me, Pete. I appreciate <laughs> it. Pete Peterson of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and I'll be right back. Please don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You can also follow him on Twitter at Pete4CA, at Pete, the number 4CA. Pete, it's uh, California, particularly where you and the parts you live uh, in, is under what is known as drought conditions, even as it looks like Thailand during the monsoon season. Uh, yeah. Tell me what that means. I don't think people outside of California quite understand what it means that you're living under drought conditions uh, or a drought policy. And what, 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 
that might be looked at in context of what true climate change looks like in California. Yeah, well, it's been the wettest winter since I've been out here about 18 years or Mm -hmm. so that I've experienced um, just remarkable the amount of rain that we've seen here in Southern California. Of course, as you get up into the mountains, both in Southern California, but up in the Sierras, uh, the Sierras are particularly important because what they call the snowpack there generates about a third of the state's water supply. Um, The latest data from the Sierras is that they're at about 180% of the normal snowpack levels this time of year. Uh, And of course, again, we're seeing other reservoirs throughout the state being filled. All that being said, uh, what you hear from many of the state's uh, environmental officials, natural resources agency, uh, water agency, and so forth is we're still in drought. And what that means for us uh, really gets down to more localized, usually, regulations around lawn watering, um, even in the building of new houses, what kind of uh, ground cover you can have, um, certainly things that may seem you know, not really consequential, but the running of fountains mm-hmm. and uh, so forth. But it The ability has, to have it, nice things, as we used to say. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it's what's been so remarkable when you look back at uh, the articles and the in- interviews that have been print- printed and written over the last few weeks is that every time a major storm comes through here, and we just had one here just a couple days ago, the the natural response from these officials is, well, it's not enough. Yeah. And uh, we need to get used to this. Uh, in fact, I just saw in a neighboring town they were hosting um, a seminar on gardening for what they said on these signs, a, the quote, the new era of water scarcity. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that view, which I've come to understand in new ways, is part and parcel of a broader question, which is to say, is the climate moving in a linear fashion? Okay. Is it moving in a unidirectional fashion? And while it struck me initially that when the drought was announced, there certainly was merit for it. The hills were brown. We obviously saw major drops in uh, the amount of water and snowpack and so forth. It's becoming evident that many of California's environmental officials thought that this was actually, we were entering into a permanent era mm-hmm. of drought. Mm-hmm. And in that, there's a whole regulatory piece that comes along, as I just mentioned, from how we build houses to what people who currently own houses, whether they've got to rip their lawns up or not, Um, obviously when you can water, whether you can wash your car, all these different kinds of things that come into play during drought conditions. But here we are, and with every passing storm, we're told it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. But you look at the snowpack, you look at the reservoirs, and they're all filling up. And it feels like there's this existential question they're facing, which is, could we actually come to a place where this dr- where we're going to have to announce that the drought is actually over? And to show in a very unique way that not only is the drought, but is climate 
uh, actually cyclical <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to linear. This is the and one thing a- they just don't want to admit to. And we were joking a little bit earlier that, uh, you know, you look at the governance of California in light of the reality and the facts on the ground and the facts in the air, so to speak. And it's something along the lines of the CDC refusing to reconsider uh, mask policy and lighter mask mandates in light of the Cochrane Review, in light of all evidence that has now come out about them, that it's irrelevant to them. They are irredentist on these things. They are immovable. Let me take a quick commercial break, this short segment. Let me return to this a little bit when we come back, if uh, you have one more segment in you, Pete. I'd love to chase some of this down. Yeah. You're making a great point, though, about the inability. It's, it's almost a version of invincible ignorance. No matter what the facts reveal and show, there is nothing so ardently leftist that they will be willing to re-examine or even give up. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you are interested in a career in that field, please be interested in that. Uh, you want to go to Pepperdine uh, School of Public Policy. Pete does such a great job over there. Su- such a great faculty. Such a great curriculum. Such a good, such a su- such a great atmosphere. Pete, we were talking about you know your your thought in thinking about uh, natural resource policy. I suppose is a good mm. way to put to to consider the genus of this discussion in California, and that you came to a, a conclusion when you see the hardened view that we are not going to declare the drought over in light of all evidence that uh, we need to be building arcs um, r- rather than running for fire hoses. Um, there, the, you, you may have put your finger on something really quite big, the holy grail of the entirety of California's governance state of mind, which is that if they give up on climate change, you said maybe it isn't linear after all. Maybe maybe it's in constant state of flux. You give up on that, not you. If they give up on that, they've lost everything. I mean, this is such an article of faith to them. Yeah, and I guess I didn't understand it in the beginning, right? I mean, of course we're going to declare a drought. All the signs are there, but now that we're in the midst of this deluge, uh, now that A is being spun Mm -hmm. as a, you know, this is evidence of climate change, right? right, That we're getting this much rain. And then the thought that we might actually come out of this drought. And there's there's a second piece to this, Seth, that's hit me as well. It's not just a view of the either the uh, the secular na- circular nature or cyclical nature of the climate versus a linear view it's also just there's also a, a political cultural aspect of it which is to say it almost feels like these environmental officials don't they they're not hoping the drought ends right <laughs> right right i mean Drought is right. a bad thing. Can right. we all agree on that? Right. And there's not a hint out of any of these officials that, yes, we hope we continue no. to see these rains no. and we Absolutely. come out of this. Absolutely. And this lack of hope, this hopelessness. Don't you see this with the homeless situation as well? I mean, look at this. 90% of homeless Portlanders swept from encampments are back on the streets. Just 1% got permanent. No matter what yeah. you try and do, with the, they do not want the problem to go away. 
And and that is another lens to this yeah. as well. Right. That as the officials are all saying, don't get your hopes up. Right. Right. I right. mean, this is we're, we were in a much deeper hole than anyone foresaw. Mm-hmm. We've got to continue to do this. Mm-hmm. There's this. Implicit, don't do anything that will fix it. That's right. And and while I think this is one of those breaking points, I think between the the expert class and the rest of us. Any normal Californian should want the drought to end. Right. <laughs> right? Right. But I just don't get that sense in any of the pronouncements, including from our governor, that we should be hoping for the drought to end, that this is somehow good news that we are, we are seeing uh, our reservoirs fill up and the snowpack increase. Uh, there's just no happiness about well, what yes that you put your finger on it there is no happiness most people are familiar with the syndrome of munchausen by proxy where you want someone else continually being sick but what about when it's not by proxy i mean it's almost it's almost like this we want to be in a constant state of sick we want to be in yeah. a constant state of disease or ill ease or unhealth whether it's about the body or the body politic it's the same animal isn't it pete I mean, again, it's just, it it really is amazing to hear public officials that one would think somehow represent Mm -hmm. or mirror the broader public attitudes toward this, but it really is remarkable to, and certainly we saw some of this at COVID. It was as if some didn't, they were really holding on Mm -hmm. to. Still are. CDC, I mean, that was the Russian Alonsky thing. Yeah. Yeah. The masks still are. But but we're certainly seeing that with 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 uh, this drought situation is that I, you would hope that our governor would be out there saying, doing a rain dance, right? You, I mean, you would think, but that's the yeah. nature of the crisis they want us to constantly live in. I call it the crisis industrial complex, because once you yeah. have a crisis, then you can declare emergency powers or natural disaster powers or yeah. any kind of bureaucratic effects that you think uh, would match your uh, progressive dream palace. Which the state has under a declared drought. Right. Um, right. So that, again, I, I, I agree with that. But it's just struck me in some new ways as I see reservoirs filling and this great news that we're getting yeah. from the Sierras with the snowpack. I'm yeah. just, it's just so, I mean, it's just. Come to California. It's great. And we're fixing <laughs> our problems. That is not the met. You would think the Board of, Tra- of Tourism and Industry would be promoting right. that, but nope. No, not at all. You don't have Chamber of Commerce days in weather days in California, right? They I don't know. promote it's, the, yeah. Uh, it's just remarkable because the, the attitudinal part of this, mm-hmm. I guess I would say, mm-hmm. I had not, I did not, I think, fully understand until we got into the place where the the situation is, is demonstrably different yeah. than what anybody is telling us. Yeah. By the way, you know, the thing that's confusing to me about these drought conditions and stuff is, are they making any extra effort? Are they actually prepared for emergencies that might go the other way, like this, uh, like this over uh, uh, unexpected level or expected level of rain? Are they trying to reclaim this water? Are they doing a job of that? Are they prepared for that? No, they're not. And that's that's the other part of it as well, right? right? Is that Californians voted to pass bonds that would put billions of dollars to work in storage facilities and in uh, tunnels that would have transported water from those Sierras further down to Southern California. Hardly any of that. The emergency only runs in one direction, or yep. the unexpected. Yeah, okay. So um, anything about mediation yeah. of these issues 
um, it's almost as if they, they want to hold on, that some want to hold on to this crisis, yeah, of course. Uh, which again has this uh, cultural aspect of really being a rather hopeless point of view. And uh, I think in that, there's, that's kind of the place where politically people begin to step back and say, you know, I was with you when I could see yeah. and understand that we were in a drought, but I'm not... Yeah, I'm not seeing it yeah, right now with the green it, hills and everything else. Yeah, it's somewhere in between invincible ignorance and the desire of the the end of the world as we know it attitude or the eve of destruction. Yeah. That's where the progressives always have to be because so much mm. more the justification for the policies they want to impose. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Well, Pete, listen, thank you for your time with us and your scholarship and everything else. Have a safe trip, and I want you, when you land in Switzerland, to just have the first thing on your mind when you touch ground there. Just say this to yourself. Seth Liebson likes fondue. (laughs) I'll remember I know you will. Now I know you will. I know I have now implanted that. There's no escaping it. I know. I know. I just ruined your flight. (laughs) Well, I know I got chocolates for my wife I have to bring back for Uh, sure. uh, Yeah, I don't want you to bring me back anything. I want you to bring me there. So does she, but uh, uh, yeah, right, right, right. Yes, that may be a little more important. Pete Peterson, God bless you, Godspeed, safe travels, and talk soon. Thanks, Wilson. You bet. Okay, man. A lot of you have been hearing me talk about why refi for a, a while now, and if you still have some questions about what it could mean for you to invest with them, they'd love for you to get in touch with them, and they will happily talk to you about it or put you in touch with any number of their satisfied clients and customers from the Phoenix area who have been investing with them and doing really well. Their number is 888-YREFI-34. They'd like me to ask you how your IRA is doing. Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the Fed or the stock market? Do you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn tax-deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y-R-E-F-Y.com. Thinking about that discussion with Pete, it kind of goes back to my monologue in the first hour, too, doesn't it, about the constant state of crisis we are supposed to all live in. And that really is what the agitation, the agitational force that you get from Marx in his time— or the progressives in theirs, or the Alinsky's uh, in more modern times, uh, this is the excuse, uh, the crisis, uh, the emergency that is always used to justify any any set of uh, power grabs and any set of power grabs that will be as permanent as they can possibly make them be, even once the actual emergency, if emergency there be, after it recedes, after it declines, after it may even go away. And you're right. Pete was right, I mean, that you do see it with COVID. When you had this review, this Cochrane review of the masks, and the CDC director said it won't alter our policy whatsoever, I mean, that's the perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. We live in a crisis despite anything you see, despite the facts on the ground, invincible ignorance Uh, We think it's healthy for you to be in a state of frenzy. That's what they're telling us. That's what they're telling us with that. Speaking of uh, going back to things, if you miss my monologues, you can always get them at 960thepatriot.com. 
as you can get anything. I got so much great feedback on my interview with Sam Stone yesterday. More feedback than I've had on a guest in a really long time. Uh, he is, of course, candidate for city council here in District 6. Folks, make sure you fill out your ballots and send them in for Sam. He will be the uh, last stand between us and the city of Phoenix going progressive. And if you did miss that interview, again, 960thepatriot.com, you can uh, listen to it. But uh, pass it on to anyone you want and think might benefit from it as well. It's rare that you get someone as gifted and as broad-minded as Sam running for public office. And to do so in a thing that really does matter and keeps us from becoming like the California we were just describing, you got to do it. you got to vote and support Sam. All right, I'm Seth Leibson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.